Uh, let's give it a moment to populate with folks. Let's give it a minute and people can get in. All right, I think we can get started. Scott, you can take it away. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Scott Kiefer. I'm Vice President of Public Affairs at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota. And I've had the pleasure of the la over the last seven or so years of partnering with Professor Larry Jacobs and the Humphrey School on a health reform series that we really launched to coincide with implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And our goal uh, for many of you who have participated in these forums over the years has been to have policy discussions to really understand how Minnesota can move forward consistent with our tradition of developing the best policy, setting aside uh, some political differences and some of the more tense discussions and how we can move forward. And today's discussion is really timely and very important. And I'm looking forward to it because uh, Health Commissioner Jan Malcolm is joining us and uh, Larry Jacobs. And I think the commissioner have an impeccable sense of timing because we've heard positive signs from both the commissioner and the governor this week and using the words uh, plateau and what some of the data mean with respect to Minnesota's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And consistent with the tradition that uh, Professor Jacobs and I have had and instilled here at this forum, I do want to say that uh, this is a non-political discussion, but I do want to acknowledge the exemplary job that I think Commissioner Malcolm has done in managing the pandemic under the governor's leadership and uh, really uh, recognizing that if you're taking uh, political heat from all sides, uh, as uh, she often has, I think, during managing the pandemic, you're probably doing something right. And Minnesota clearly is doing something right because, as the commissioner again has told us over the last several days, there are very positive trend lines. So many of you uh, hopefully read about a month or so ago uh, Minnesota characterized uh, Jan Malcolm as Minnesota's Tony Fauci, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. I would say that for a lot of us who have had the privilege of working with her over the years, uh, and I say that on behalf of uh, myself and my colleague Lynn Nelson, uh, who worked closely with the commissioner in previous iterations as a health commissioner, we think of her something more than Minnesota's Tony Fauci. Uh, we think of her as a little bit of a superhero uh, maybe a Wonder Woman of sorts or something, and, and I'm embarrassing uh, the commissioner. But in all reality, uh, she has such a depth of knowledge and passion about public health issues. And I've been so impressed with the poise and the confidence and the calm that she's brought to the conversation. And I think in particular, uh, to capture a little bit of the political tension, one thing that has just been remarkable 
about the commissioner's leadership is the way that she really has cut through the perception that sometimes there's a choice between public health and the economy in managing the pandemic. And the commissioner has really schooled us that uh, when it comes to public health and the economy, uh, we really have to manage to both of those. Uh, and there's not a choice uh, between the two of them. I think the nice thing about today's conversation as we start to think ahead a little bit, not looking past the pandemic, but mindful of the next phase, I look forward to uh, the commissioner's comments in thinking about what is truly necessary to build a 21st century public health system. What are the lessons of COVID-19 that we can move forward on? What are the things that we really need to think about changing from a long-term standpoint to move toward a system of health and away from a system based solely on healthcare? And importantly, something that I know the commissioner understands full well. Related, how do we get upstream? How do we deal with the social determinants of health? And how do we take all the energy that Minnesotans are feeling coming out of the tragic murder of George Floyd and learn from the social inequities that have been brought to bear? And what, do the, what does the COVID-19 pandemic tell us for those social inequities? and how do we address them both in the short and the long term. So with that, I very much look forward to the conversation and Jan having an opportunity to think strategically ahead a little bit, while I know she's gonna school us on the latest data and what they mean for the state of Minnesota. So commissioner, thank you for taking the time and thank you for being here today. And I'll turn it over to Professor Jacobs. Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, and thank you for your partnership it's been a terrific series, and I think we've really carved out um, an important area of kind of really uh, serious but not partisan conversations about health policy and public health. And thank you very much, Commissioner Malcolm, for joining us. Uh, it's good to have you back. I feel like we've been having these conversations for some time, and I think one of the first conversations we had about two decades ago was over what's called social determinants of health, but it's essentially the impact of race and ethnicity and income and other factors on health. And to think about health as a population issue, not just an individual issue. Well, hi, Larry, it's good to see you again. Um, however unusual our circumstances, you have a lovely backdrop there, by the way. <laughs> good looking city. Um, it is, it is uh, great to be talking uh, with you and, and, and with the audience about, and, and thank you, Scott, too, for those generous and, yes, embarrassing um, kind words. Um, it, it's great to be talking about as challenging as COVID has been for all of us, and I think will remain so, um, putting, trying to put it in the broader context of, of health policy and of what we know really determines health outcomes and how inequitably um, health outcomes are distributed across our population. And we're seeing it here in COVID as well. And the, the, I still am struggling to find the words to adequately express the meaning of these last couple of weeks, the, the, the tragic and the outrageous um, killing of, of Mr. Floyd and the community's response to it. Um, really does, I think, you know, I've 
there have been so many thoughtful things written and, and said by leaders in the community, but just this question of, have we finally had our kind of our eyes opened and our, our hearts and minds opened to see what structural racism looks like and to begin to understand that um, the outcomes that we see in society, whether they're health outcomes or economic or educational or anything else, is so powerfully determined by those, by how literally how our communities are put together through, through public policies and, and social norms. So I, I look forward to talking a little bit uh, about the, the equity dimensions of, of COVID um, and certainly happy to talk about you know, where, we, where we think we are in the, in the pandemic at this stage of the game. And I underscore think we are or hope we are uh, several times, because if there's one thing we've learned over the last four months, it's that there's so much we don't know about this virus and it continues to, um, to manifest uh, in, in, uh, in different ways in different communities for reasons we don't totally understand. So even though we're, we're at a bit of a, uh, we think, pattern looks like we're in a bit of a plateau emerging over the last month. We really frankly have no idea where it goes from here, whether it uh, stays in this pattern of a fairly stable, you know, still, uh, you know, pretty significant numbers of cases every day, but uh, up with some fluctuations up and down. We've had several patterns now of four or five days of declining numbers of new cases, followed by a couple of days of uptick. But so it sort of like looks like small waves on top of a somewhat of a plateau, but whether we stay there, whether we accelerate, um, how the effects, uh, the events of the last two weeks will impact that, that is yet to emerge. It'll take us a couple weeks before we know. Let's get into some of those issues, but let's start where you started. Um, and as I said, this is a topic that uh, I remember you addressing when you were commissioner of health uh, under Jesse Ventura, which was a couple decades ago. Well, that's a, long, a while ago, yeah. Uh, and you would go around the, the state talking about these disparities on race and ethnicity and income and other factors. At this moment, what are you seeing in terms of uh, these sort of social determinants of health today? Well, it, it, I'm, thank you for kind of calling that out, that we've been talking about this for a long time. And certainly public health people have known that community conditions kind of are the game when it comes to uh, what predicts our health uh, as people, as individuals and as communities. But if that, that is so much more in the conversation now and the, and the, and the literature and the, the science and the, uh, the uh, scholarship behind documenting the impact of social determinants has just exploded in, in those in those years. And so, I mean, I, you and I might've been among, you know, a pretty small handful of people talking about social determinants 20 years ago, but now it's at least in the conversation. I think we're still struggling to know what to do about it. You know, what are the, what are the policy levers that can make um, systemic enough change to really move some of those needles. But um, the fact of the overwhelming influence of social determinants on outcomes and on inequitable outcomes is just so much more clear than it was. Your, uh, the Department of Health has put together some statistics looking at the incidence of um, COVID-19 um, per 100,000 people. And what it shows is that Hispanics are the most likely to uh, become ill, followed by um, African-Americans 
and then Native, America, uh, Native Americans and Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. Uh, how do you read this data? Does this look to you surprising or, or not? Well, you know, it's, um, it, it's always distressing to see it show up again and again and again. But, but frankly, it's, it's not all that surprising, um, given that we know that um, uh, these very populations, indigenous and, uh, and people of color, um, are employed in some of the very sectors that, that have the highest exposure uh, potential. Uh, employed in healthcare, long-term care specifically, um, big congregate uh, workplaces like the food processing plant outbreaks that we've seen, uh, living conditions, um, you know, often are more uh, are more congested. Um, so again, the it's it's not about the biology of the people, it's or their behaviors necessarily. It's about their circumstances. We do know because of the uh, inequities also in uh, rates of chronic disease caused by so many things, uh, you know, uh, systemic racism and the stress that that we now know what that does to our bodies over time. Uh, chronic diseases are, are uh, much more prevalent among these same populations. So it's, it's uh, distressing, but not surprising that if they are differentially exposed to the virus, which they are by virtue of their uh, living and work settings, um, they are also more, more susceptible to more severe cases of, uh, of the illness because of their underlying health conditions. Yeah, and I think this is a very important theme that you've pulled out, and I just want to accent it, which is you are thinking of health in, in these circumstances as not simply individual. It's not simply whether we're eating the right foods or behaving the right ways, though that has some influence, but you're putting an accent on the fact that there's this broader kind of environment in which we all live, and if you're a person of color, if you are someone who's um, uh, American Indian, um, you're going to be more likely to get ill. And it's for all the factors you've mentioned. That is a profoundly different approach than I think most Americans have, which is my body is a machine and I control it. Right. Well, yeah. And, and we know, we know behaviors do matter. I mean, we, we just can't stress enough the importance in the context of COVID for people to be using, you know, good basic health practices, um, things like, you know, staying home when you're sick to help prevent the spread of the virus. Well, that's a whole heck of a lot easier for those of us in certain kinds of jobs or with paid leave, for example. So there again is another kind of social determinant that that uh, puts uh, many of these many of these populations that we're seeing with the disproportionate impact. Um, makes it so much harder for them to be able to to practice the the behaviors that are protective of them and of their families and of the broader community. So it it really um, this is just such a, a another stark example of the power of the structural forces that produce the inequities. And I think the main theme that you've been emphasizing is uh, how this ties up with the Black Lives Matter uh, critique which is these problems, not new. They've been around for decades. You've been beating the drum often, uh, you know, alone, um, sometimes with, with allies about these problems and the need to address them. 
What would be your top one or two agenda items that you'd like to see the Waltz administration and uh, the legislature now in the coming months and years address to begin to make some progress? So we're not here in 10 years talking about the same issue with the same patterns. Well, you know, I, I do think that uh, we are in a very pivotal moment um, that I, 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 I think something profound has shifted in the, in the conscience of, of the community and the understanding of, of these really core kind of community conditions. Um, so, you know, I, I think when it comes to specific health priorities, you know, uh, a real emphasis of this administration is on a healthy start for kids and working on um, maternal and infant um, outcomes, um, mortality and morbidity for moms and uh, newborns is a, uh, a powerful point of entry, I think, into uh, health disparities that evolve over a lifetime. So working on um, maternal and infant um, health outcomes and the disparities packed into those would be pretty high on, on the, the health agenda. But the, the agenda really does need to be about these systemic reforms we're talking about. Um, you know, ec economic opportunity, housing policy, police accountability, voting rights. I mean, all of those things that are so fundamental to whether people, you know, can, can have opportunity. I mean, that, that's what we've been saying at the health department increasingly for the last few years is that the, the, the root cause of health inequities is inequitable access to opportunity you know, educational opportunity, economic opportunity, opportunity to access good health services. Um, so, you know, I, I, I know you expect this of me, but you asked me a focused question and I, you know, go to 500,000 feet, but it, it, it really is sort of about the health of our civic uh, life together that, and that's, you know, what we'll, we'll just see how, how we're able to seize this moment where people do seem to be um, seeing, um, you know, the seeing what what the people experiencing disparities and inequities have seen for for generations and decades and hundreds of years, that the rest of us are getting a glimpse into um, what structural barriers look like. I want to just let people know who are um, uh, listening and watching. Uh, please join the conversation. You'll see at the bottom of the screen. There's that Q and A uh, button. If you click it, put in questions. We're gonna get to as many questions as we can. And uh, as you can see, Jan Malcolm uh, is someone who loves to engage in conversation. Uh, Commissioner Malcolm, I wanna kind of shift to um, the broader set of questions and, and challenges you mentioned at the outset. And um, I had in uh, on Senator Gazelko, who of course is the top ranked Republican in the legislature. And, um, he had a somewhat different view about how to approach the coronavirus pandemic and what government policy should be. And I want to read you a quote um, uh, from a Mintpost piece where he said, we cannot be making all these dramatic decisions for the entire state of Minnesota. We know it's primarily for seniors. The governor must immediately lift all mandates and restrictions, including those in schools and large gatherings let individuals decide for themselves how to keep safe. 
What do you think? Well, uh, he, he certainly has made the has made that argument and made that point. Uh, you know, we can we can talk about many things embedded in in that statement. Um, first of all, I mean, it, it certainly is the case that mortality um, is heavily concentrated among the elderly and those with underlying health conditions. Um, that is less true of the of just overall cases. Um, and we know that, uh, that this disease can affect uh, everyone um, at all, at virtually all ages uh, with very severe uh, disease. So it's just not the case that this is only a concern for the elderly and people with underlying health conditions. But even looking at how do we protect those vulnerable populations, What's, what's causing the, uh, the outbreaks in, in uh, congregate care settings is community spread. It's people coming into the facilities, um, workers, vendors, uh, family members. Um, so what's happening in the community is what's driving uh, what's happening to our more vulnerable populations. And you know the data are pretty incontrovertible that um, even though it's tough medicine and the governor has has acknowledged that you know that there have been a, a lot of sacrifices made by Minnesotans to um, you know to do these aggressive community containment measures, but because we did them and we did them early and we did them vigorously, we we absolutely believe that we saved lives that we've. Uh, slowed down the growth of the epidemic. It isn't over, as I've said, um, uh, but we've slowed it down. We've given ourselves time to learn more about the virus. My goodness, we know so much more now than we did four months ago, and we were flat wrong about a lot of things four months ago, in, including things like the role of uh, asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread, which, you know, which again really does make this a community-wide concern, not just a concern for you know, a, a specific subset of the population. But those, those sacrifices Minnesotans have made have, have bought us time and time has been our friend here, both in terms of gaining more knowledge about the virus, um, development of, of, of treatments, uh, vaccine development underway, but it's also bought us time to get the healthcare system more prepared to deal with larger numbers of cases. And I just, I think, that I would hold our, our record on those things up against, um, uh, against anybody and without denying the, 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 uh, the consequences of those choices and the costs of them, I think that we are in a far stronger uh, position now than, uh, than, we, than we ever could have been had we not done some of those uh, community measures. And some of those consequences include about 650,000 Minnesotans who've lost their jobs, um, our school children who have been unable to go to school. Yep. Um, there's been, you know, kind of an end of life as we knew it beforehand. Yeah. Right. That's right. And I mean, and, and I think that underscores the importance of finding the balance. I mean, I think what the governor has said in the, in the kind of series of, of reopening, um, decisions that he has made have been all about trying to find that balance. We believe, you know, again, kind of back to the pattern of the epidemic here in Minnesota, we don't know what's coming next, but we believe it's likely we're going to be having, a, you know, significant uh, COVID presence in the community for some time to come. And we know we can't just, uh, you know, have uh, really restrictive stay at home 
uh, orders in place until, until the virus is completely manageable. Uh, that cost would be too great for um, other health concerns as well as some of the economic ones you mentioned. Um, so finding that right balance, you know, can, how can we reopen, um, but do so more safely? I, we, I would have to respectfully disagree with Senator Gazelka that just throwing the doors wide open uh, would be, you know, would be appropriate or safe to do in this environment with this degree of community spread still around. So opening in a, uh, in a more controlled way where where, where we're trying to still achieve some protection in terms of concentrations of people, you know, proc close proximity over long periods of time, just really encouraging people to keep doing those, making those personal responsible decisions. Couldn't agree with, I do totally agree with Senator Gazelka about how important that is. But the, you know, the, again, as we started off talking about, community context matters a lot to support or not support those choices. So Jill Smith has a question just on this point. Um, what do you think about opening the economy with this recommendation of masks and physical distancing when so many people are not following those guidelines? Is this, is this a safe policy given what we're seeing in terms of non-compliance? Well, it's certainly it's a concern and we, uh, we have work to do to communicate effectively to help people understand why this is important. I'm not sure the message has totally, you know, gotten, gotten through to, to, to some folks yet that this isn't just about their own individual health risks, but it's about uh, risks to people that they love uh, and, and care for and uh, want to protect. Um, so the notion of, you know, it, it isn't just about you're not afraid you're going to get sick, but the, the thing, these things that we need to do together uh, to protect our, um, uh, our, our most vulnerable and our loved ones. So, and, so we're going to keep trying to communicate um, in, in new and, and hopefully more effective ways um, and um, share the information. You know, as it, it, I think early on, there was a lot of mixed messages in uh, coming from all sorts of directions about whether masks were a good thing or not a good thing or effective or not effective and whether uh, you know, whether, you know, the, the disease was transmitted in, in, uh, in ways that we now know that it, that it is that we didn't know before. So I think just sharing that data, you know, sharing that information um, and, and hoping that Minnesotans will continue to, you know, to, to, to be, to see the bigger picture and not just their own, not just the impact on themselves alone. You had mentioned a moment ago about the uh, congregate care settings which of course are nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Um, and, you know, this has been a very disturbing pattern in Minnesota. Um, mm -hmm. Star Tribune did a story on May 9th about the St. Teresa of New Hope facility, which has gotten a lot of attention. Um, and it shows that the death toll at this one facility is among the most lethal in the country. In fact, Minnesota has the unfortunate ranking um, uh, as one of the top um, uh, states in terms of illness and uh, mortality among uh, those in long-term care facilities. And then we look at St. Teresa in terms of um, the number of people who tested positive. It's almost 60%. Um, and this is a pattern that we see across Minnesota's uh, long-term care facilities. Why? What's going wrong? 
Well, I'm, I'm glad, you, uh, glad you raised that because it allows me to correct the record on the data. Um, we've, you know, for, we've been counting um, uh, uh, settings that, that share the common characteristics of you know, close quarters and uh, uh, vulnerable populations. So we, we include skilled nursing facilities, assisted live or, or nursing homes, uh, same term, uh, assisted living facilities, group homes, adult foster care, um, and mental health and substance abuse treatment centers. Um, so, you know, so, but they're congregate uh, care settings. So the, that's separate from the congregate workplace setting. So we have thought for a long time that uh, some of the, the characterization of Minnesota's rates being worse than the national average were because we weren't comparing apples to apples. And indeed, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid just last week released data um, on nursing homes specifically. And we are far below the national average for both cases and deaths if you're looking just at comparing skilled nursing facilities to skilled nursing facilities. Thank, thank you for that correction, but I'm sure you're not pleased and satisfied with um, you know, the facilities and the media have been reporting on cases like St. Teresa and others around the state. And there's been real outrage. Here's a, a comment from one of the uh, kind of citizen advocates uh, who said, it's a terrible policy that we are moving uh, coronavirus patients who are being released from hospitals into these long-term care facilities and assisted living facilities. Um, it's putting coronavirus patients uh, in these facilities is basically a death sentence. Is that true? We don't believe that that is true. We, we do understand the, 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 the questions and the concerns, and, and I, I can understand it. it as a, a family member or concerned citizen. It, it sounds like, why would you do that? In point of fact, there, we have no evidence of any um, outbreaks that have been caused by hospital to skilled nursing facility or assisted living transfers. Um, and um, we, but first let me say, let me just back up and say you're absolutely right. We're, I'm not for a moment suggesting that this is not a top priority to do everything we can to support long-term care facilities in, uh, in, in, do, in caring for these, uh, these populations. It's uh, because of all you know, the reasons that we talked about, the, the congregate living, the staff coming and going, um, as with other infectious diseases, every year we have flu outbreaks in, in these very same settings. And they are very vulnerable to, in, uh, to infectious disease spread. Uh, on a whole range of issues. So we've known that since the beginning and have been working, I think, increasingly effectively with these facilities to make sure they're using best infection control practices, um, that, they, that they have access to personal protective equipment and know how to use it. That wasn't the case early in the epidemic. So some of the facilities that have had large numbers of cases were among the very first, did not have all the support that, that was needed in terms of uh, PPE and, um, uh, and, and really vigorous infection control practices. But I'll just share with you that um, we've had a, a team of, of folks from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, working with us here in Minnesota, and they've been here a couple times now. They were here in April, they, were, they have just been here the last couple of weeks, 
and they they are really um, they volunteered how impressed they were with the progress that's been made. And among the facilities that have a lot of cases, they have really uh, gotten gotten good at managing this. And they have even with true, it's true they've they've developed a lot of cases, but they've stabilized um, for the most part um, now. And the CDC folks even said. You know, that there, I know it might sound counterintuitive, but that there's, uh, there's a real rationale for, uh, for relying on facilities that have gotten very good at this um, to, to be sort of specialized, uh, specialized places to, to care for these people. And I, many of them are doing so out of a real mission commitment. And I think one other component that you've talked about in the past is that we're seeing these facilities setting up separate wings, separate units, uh, so that it's not like there's, you know, a, a senior uh, or someone with dementia in a unit next to two people right. with coronavirus. There's a, there's a real effort to segregate, uh, including the, the care for, uh, uh, personnel. So there's less risk. Yes, precisely. I think we've, we've gotten, uh, we've really kind of honed the, the best practice recommendations from, uh, from around the country with CDC's help with learnings from our own facilities here in Minnesota to, uh, to document and spread those, uh, those best practices. And there are, back to your question earlier, like why would, what is the process uh, by which somebody is discharged uh, from a hospital um, back into one of these settings? These settings have to meet very specific criteria, including the ability to do just as you said, segregate, cohort, make sure people have you know, separate bedrooms, separate bathroom facilities, uh, stringent infection control uh, procedures, trained staff. So um, I, I, full, I really appreciate that this is, a, this is a, a nuanced issue and a complicated one and a very emotional one because people yeah. are, are indeed um, concerned for the safety of, of, uh, of folks in the facility, as are we. But we really um, are, are seeing some uh, encouraging signs that the situation is stabilizing and that more and more facilities, um, the majority of facilities have one or two cases. It's a, it's a fairly focused list that has more than uh, 20 or 30 cases. And among those with large numbers of cases, they're, they're really working hard and, and showing some impressive stabilization. Let me move on to another issue. Um, just this week, we're getting reports of what some are, are describing as a second wave. Um, and this involves uh, states like Arizona, which has seen a 50% jump in hospitalization over the recent period. Uh, recently, one of the top um, uh, medical uh, uh, networks put out a warning that uh, the intensive care units we're now uh, at risk because of the numbers rising. The state has told the hospitals to now move on to an emergency uh, platform, but we're also seeing significant rises in Texas. Arkansas is up almost 90% over the last week to 10 days. It's about 21 states now that are showing an increase in uh, infection rates, in hospitalization, the use of uh, intensive care units. Um, is that a real thing? Is that representing your view a second wave or kind of a rise in this first wave? Is that something that's heading for Minnesota? 
Well, it could be. And, and that's why we have said we, you know, we're, we're guardedly optimistic that the trends over the last month have, have definitely been encouraging in terms of uh, uh, slowing growth in cases, stabilizing hospitalizations, slower death rates, uh, increased um, uh, testing capacity and decreased test positivity rates stabilizing rates of community spread. I mean, there's just a bunch of indicators that we, that we watch. Um, but, you know, I think what we're seeing there, the theory is that in, in these other states, there, it's the result of, of uh, one might argue, premature reopening um, and relaxation of some of the uh, restrictions on, um, on uh, business activity and, and uh, social gatherings. That and, and so it's not really a second wave; it's a reemergence of the of the uh, you know of the of the opportunity to pass around the virus that's already present in the community, rather than the virus having you know uh, gone quiescent for a while and then coming back. So we think that what we're seeing is just a, a, a resumption of the of the curve that had been flattened by some of the of the. Uh, uh, mitigation measures that were taken. Um, we we believe, you know, our hope is that we've uh, that that we've done this in a in a, a, a gradual and pretty calibrated way. That that uh, we put out, um, you know, a lot of very specific guidance. Um, and some would say, I'm sure, uh, overly restrictive guidance. But we're really trying to strike that balance between reopening but doing it in a way that doesn't just throw the doors wide open. If there is a uh, resurgence of coronavirus cases, hospitalization, a rise uh, in ICU uh, usage over you know, a week's time, 10 days time, would you recommend a resumption of stay at home orders of a variety of restrictions? In other words, you've loosened things up. If it looks like there's another wave coming into Minnesota, would you tighten things back? Well, I think that you know the we've certainly talked about that, and the governor has been pretty clear that that that's the other the flip side of the coin. You know, if we're going to make some moves, acknowledging that we're introducing some level of added risk into the situation, we have to be prepared to take the opposite moves if the risk is, is not as manageable as we think it is. Um, and there would be a range of things we could do. It would really depend on the nature of the resurgence. Is it localized? Is it widespread? Is it tied to a specific, uh, specific thing? Like you know, when we saw a real sp spike in our cases around the um, you know the multiple food processing plant outbreaks that 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 still are going on, but have, have uh, thankfully stabilized uh, to a certain degree as well. But we haven't really talked about the potential impact of the uh, mass gatherings, the, uh, the the activities of the last couple of weeks, the protests, the vigils, the community cleanups, the in incredible you know outpouring of of people wanting to make their voices heard, um, and we'll be watching really closely to see what impact that you know very large kind of community event has on our numbers and it would be great news if it has a small impact um and but we just don't know yet we'll be looking for those for those indicators to emerge over the next week to, to two weeks there are a number of questions about sports and the impact of the restrictions on sports 
I noticed that the uh, University of Auburn's football team, which Minnesotans uh, remember from uh, the Gophers win over that team, that that team recently uh, tested positive several of their players. And we are actually seeing a, a rising number of Division I sports teams that are reporting positive testing for the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Do you think the University of Minnesota should open up its football team this fall? Well, certainly we're um, having lots of conversations with uh, the higher ed community and uh, su- suggesting guidance and suggesting that we think about you know, different sports having different risk profiles and you know, hence some of the some of the guidance and the categorization of low, medium, and high risk sports, which we borrowed heavily from the NCAA and the US Olympic and Paralympic committees on that, saying we're, we're all eager to get back to sports as we can, but the, the ones that are the safest to do are the ones with, with less direct contact. Um, and so I think that we, we, would, we would advise that um, we, we certainly are going to have to see what is the status uh, of the epidemic. And we realize that, <laughs> that those times are coming soon when schools have to make those decisions and those plans. Um, at, at, the, at the present time, it's, it, it, it would give me some real pause with the degree of community spread we still have uh, and, the, and, and the, um, you know, the, the nature of the interactions in, uh, in a sport like football. I think there are a lot of Gopher fans out there sighing. Oh, I know. I, this none of this is pleasant. Believe me. Yeah. Um, look, I've got we've got so many questions here, and I've been filtering in many of them. Um, uh, a number of the questions are about kind of, or some of them, about what the uh, medical providers uh, and the uh, health insurers could be doing, uh, both at this moment, but also in preparing for a future in which the coronavirus is likely to be with us for some time. What are your recommendations for the health, the medical care system and the health finance system? Yeah, boy, that's a great and, and, and broad topic. Um, you know, I do, I think this has been a good reminder and a wake up call for us that as much as we kind of talk theoretically about emergency preparedness and, and uh, expecting that pandemics are a question of of when, not if. Um, so this is a real reminder that that is, wasn't just a theoretical, you know, academic uh, supposition. That's probably, we should probably expect um, more events like this uh, perhaps to become more frequent. And now we know, we see how interconnected the world is and how easily um, things can, can become a major, uh, a major threat to health and a major disruptor. So being being on a very different footing about kind of the reality of, of preparedness planning at a scale that's way bigger than what we typically have been thinking about when we think about public health emergencies. So that really does kind of make us think about this, the system and how well connected it is or isn't. The, the providers in Minnesota and the health plans have been very helpful to this effort as well. Uh, there's just an unprecedented degree of collaboration around information sharing, around joint planning, around making sure that we have real time, everyday insight to what, where 
what is the capacity situation? Where, where does the load need to be balanced a little differently? Where do we need to surge um, you know, people and equipment and uh, personal protective equipment, all that sort of thing. So there's never been information sharing and collaboration to this degree. And I, I hope we can keep that going. Within the public health community, again, this is just making us have to think about interventions at a scale that really just is not something we had given enough thought to before. And it's making us rethink um, our partnerships and you know how do you how do you really enlist the you know the, the the healthcare community the health financing community into the the effort with state and local governmental public health when it comes to things like how are we going to you know really run a comprehensive testing regimen going forward how are we going to do the you know the kind of the basic blocking and tackling of case investigation and and following up uh, with contacts that's going to take that's going to take a much more connect, connected network than we've had in the past. We're running out of time, so I want to just make sure we get to as many questions as we can. Um, testing. Um, uh, one of the things that the Waltz administration moved on pretty quickly was to build up the capacity of the state of Minnesota to do testing, uh, perhaps the level of 20,000 tests per day. Um, we haven't really reached that level in a consistent way. Uh, and I know you've been a little frustrated that we're not doing more testing. And yet, after the protests, uh, you and the governor were encouraging the protesters to get tested. Mm -hmm. We've had at least one of the major health systems say, we can't handle the new demand because we lack uh, the supplies we need. Is Minnesota prepared for a surge uh, where we are going to need to do, you know, a high level of testing, perhaps at that 20,000 a day level. Yeah. Well, I think we're, we're actually uh, have a pretty good line of sight to that 20,000 a day capacity. And the, a lot of capacity exists in the system. The challenge has been trying to line up the, the, the supply with the demand and whether that's supply on the front end, on the, on the uh, specimen collection end, which is what you were just referring to about a supply shortage versus the laboratory processing capacity on the back end and just getting all of that to really you know flow um, seamlessly on a day-to-day -day basis is uh, we've been working hard to, to uh, coordinate all of that through the state emergency operations center you know on a day-to-day -day basis to try to get the supplies to you know to where there's where that's causing a barrier um, so I think we're making progress and, and more to come but another thing I just quickly want to say on the testing front I'm really optimistic that because of the the good science here in Minnesota the work at the University of Minnesota the Mayo Clinic uh, research going on in many of our health systems that I, I hope not only do we have a robust testing record uh, regimen, but that it's a, that's smart, that it's informed by the best science on what tests are the most useful for what purpose, in what combination, what timing. I mean, you, you can throw a million tests at the problem and it, it might not yield uh, very actionable information unless, unless it's really, you're really using the right test for the right purpose. That's where I think Minnesota's can really lead. And are we building up uh, supplies, uh, not only for testing of both the front and the back end, but also the protective uh, personal equipment, the, the mask and the goggles, um, the, uh, the, the face shields, yep. um, and for the ventilators. I mean, are we ready 
for the next surge? We, we believe so. And again, that's a, that's a cautiously optimistic statement. The, uh, we, we post that data every day on the COVID-19 website that shows, you know, kind of capacity on hand um, at, at current and projected higher use rates. And, and when we continue to try to procure um, kind of a state uh, backup system, we've, we've, we've been encouraging and we rely on the health systems to continue to procure PPE through their normal channels. Uh, but, but we've um, you know, tried to build up a kind of a backstop at the state level and we're in, you know, we're not stopping. We're continuing uh, to look for more. It's still a global challenge. And if indeed we see cases reemerging all over the world, that global supply chain problem is going to stay with us. Um, you mentioned earlier about the importance of educating Minnesotans uh, to use masks, to, to continue to engage in physical distancing, even as you loosen things. One of uh, the list of our viewers is asking, do you think it would be helpful if there was more coverage with visceral images of what it means to become sick with the coronavirus end up in a hospital? That's an interesting point. I, you know, I, 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 don't, think, I don't think most of us have a very uh, clear picture of how, how very serious this disease um, can be and, and, and what a, a vicious disease it can be. So, you know, I, I think that's not a bad point. There are, there are journalists watching this. Would be one of your recommendations that journalists should get in a hospital and, and see what's actually happening to Minnesotans? Well, that, that would sort of be a tricky question, and, and I'd leave that up to the, to the health systems, their comfort level with that or not. But, um, you know, obviously, uh, those are they, those can be fraught questions about uh, how best to portray those situations. But um, I, I clearly think, you know, to the extent that folks are thinking, well, it's it, you know, it's really mild, or it only affects you know those people, be they the elderly or what what have you. Um, that we need to do a better job of uh, painting the picture of the of the full range of experiences, because even even folks who um, you know, recover well, uh, or seemingly, you know, we're learning a lot more about potential ongoing complications um, of, of this disease. But folks, uh, folks who don't end up in the hospital can still end up being really, really sick. And those who do end up in the hospital can, can be in our in truly life threatening situations. Uh, another question, uh, once the vaccine becomes available, which is an optimistic scenario. Yeah. Um, Once, yeah, right. Uh, what will be uh, the approach in terms of its distribution? Will it be targeted at certain populations? Will it be uh, reserved for certain essential workers? What's the thinking in terms of, you know, the first set of uh, dosages uh, come into the state? How's the state going to handle that? Well, you know, I think um, we, uh, our experience with uh, with the vaccination campaigns um, over time will, will inform that. And I think, yes, uh, depending upon what the supply situation is, it might indeed make, uh, be necessary and make sense to, uh, to prioritize healthcare workers, um, uh, critical sector workers, vulnerable populations uh, as the first to, uh, to, to be immunized. And of course, we're going to be 
watching with bated breath to see if indeed we have a, a second wave uh, that coincides with influenza season. Um, you know, the putting a putting a real priority on flu vaccinations is going to be really really important next year as well. Uh, as you know, the uh, Trump administration has compelled uh, meatpacking plants to open, um, and we also know that some of those plants lacked the protective personal equipment. Has the state of Minnesota uh, rushed forward with uh, that sort of protection and testing? to make sure that the meatpacking plants don't once again become hotspots? Well, we've certainly um, given a lot, of, a lot of guidance, been doing a lot of consultation with occupational health staff and with plant leadership, um, the Department of Agriculture, Department of Labor and Industry, and health have really worked very closely together to try to get proactive and to get out to all the food processing plants with, uh, with those best practices recommendations. We, we, we believe that the, uh, uh, those um, producers are taking this uh, very seriously and uh, doing an increasingly good job health screening their workers, uh, knowing when, uh, when to uh, offer testing and the critical importance of Keeping, uh, keeping workers out of the workplace if they, uh, if they are ill. A question here about uh, patient privacy. As you know, Minnesota has fairly stringent laws on this, and yet uh, the Minnesota Department of Health has sent a notification letter to hospitals in Minnesota requesting uh, patient data. How do you balance the need for that data uh, versus uh, both the law and the tradition of Minnesota regarding privacy? Uh, great question. And it's a really important distinction to make. The kind of surveillance data that we're looking at serves an incredibly important public health purpose in get, giving us an earlier picture of what might be happening than just waiting for laboratory, confirm, laboratory testing and, and confirmation that, as we know, gives us such an incomplete picture. Uh, so surveillance data is critically important to, to allow us to know what's happening and to try to mount the right interventions in the right places at the right time. And it's just critical for folks to understand that that is aggregated data that is not patient level data. It, there's no personal identifiers in this data. So um, it, it really um, is fully compliant with not only HIPAA, but with Minnesota's stringent uh, patient protection uh, privacy protection laws. It's clearly authorized under statute and it's absolutely not identifiable personal data. Thank you. Um, as you can imagine, many Minnesotans are uh, concerned about resuming some of their previous activities like going to a restaurant. Um, will there be stringent rules and enforcement for non-compliance by restaurants of the public health guidelines? Yes, um, and, and and that you know that will that will rely on uh, state and local environmental health staff as well as um, you know uh, uh, I've mentioned a couple times the Department of Labor and Industry, which is such a great resource uh, for workers um, express, expressing concerns about workplace conditions. So the, yeah, these um, the, the guidance um, is is. Uh, 
tied into the governor's executive orders about setting, uh, you know, capacity limits and uh, and things like needing to have a, a a preparedness plan before reopening. That spells out exactly how a place of business or is going to comply with the health guidance. So we're um, absolutely. Uh, it, requiring that uh, that this guidance be uh, be followed and and we believe that and we've gotten great uh, feedback and great help actually from a lot of the business community uh, uh, helping to uh, to inform this guidance based on what they're learning how to do two last questions uh, first is as you know well our medical system is is um, highly concentrated in urban areas when you get into greater Minnesota it's much more dispersed You've got to travel many miles. When there are outbreaks of the coronavirus in rural areas, how are we going to treat them? Well, there too. I think we've one of the things that's been working well for us is the eight regional preparedness coalitions that have existed around Minnesota for probably 15, 20 years now. Um, and, and, and they've built up a, a good kind of communication flow and a, and a good way of thinking regionally about capacity. Um, so I think there, as I mentioned, um, that taking this system-wide approach to where, where is capacity available, where is it needed, um, what kind of uh, additional support. There's been a, you know, a, a, a fair amount of federal and state grants that have been made available to uh, providers all across the state to try to increase capacity and, and to be ready. So um, certainly appreciating the truth of what you say that, uh, that, that uh, some areas are uh, are just much more tight in terms of available hospital uh, capacity. I think on a regional and statewide level, we're uh, we're uh, in we stand in pretty good shape right now in terms of our uh, level of preparedness. You and I got to know each other. At least I got to know you when you were working with Governor Ventura on uh, health reform, and this was really an almost a nonpartisan sort of effort. It, it was a, a, a remarkable and frankly exciting period of innovation. Uh, then you started that period, this is 20 years ago, talking about the disparities based on race and income. Uh, and now you're back in this job. And I have to say my first instinct was, thank goodness Jan Malcolm is in this job. <laughs> and then as it evolved, I thought, what a nightmare <laughs> to have you in that spot. Um, has it been a nightmare for you? Well, you know, none of us, um, none of us could, I don't think, maybe Mike Osterholm did, but not very many of us imagined um, quite how all-consuming uh, this would be as it started to emerge um, in the early months of this year. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I still, though it is enormously challenging. It's just a huge privilege to be part of the public health system in Minnesota because we've got such smart people doing really, really good work. Um, and, but it's, it's, it is definitely a challenge because there's so much we don't know and everybody wants more certainty, you know, about what's coming next and will there be a fall peak or when's this going to be over? And um, people get really uh, weary of us saying, we just don't know, but we just don't know. Yeah, and that's a classic Jan Malcolm uh, response. <laughs> I want to just close with a question uh, from one of the members of the audience. What educational path should kids take who want to be the next 
Jan Malcolm. Oh boy. <laughs> well, I think, you know, um, I, I, I can thank you and congrats to the university community for, you know, continuing to prepare our leaders of the future. Um, I think the, you know, some of the, the blending of the, of the just tried and true core public health uh, competencies and skills kind of coupled with, with new technology and system thinking and human-centered design. I mean, there's, there, there's going to need to be a wholesale re-looking re and, and reinvention of some of the ways we, uh, we put our systems back together um, economically and in, in terms of, of uh, we just barely scratched the surface of what this might mean for health policy and health systems going forward. But that system, system thinking is, is really a key, I think. When the 9-11 uh, hit, we saw so many Americans rushing towards the need of their country. Do you think there's going to be now a rush into public health because people see how important it is to our country and our communities? I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, this is just sort of class. This is this classic, you know, we're pretty invisible when everything's going well. And, uh, and then when some major thing happens, it's like, well, why don't we know more about this? And how come we don't have all these systems in place to do all this perfect, um, uh, detection and, and containment. Um, so I think it is, I hope, uh, re-educating re people on what public health is and why it matters. Um, and I, I know we're going to be talking about that for the next years to come. So what did this tell us about the health of the public health system and where might we need to beef it up? Uh, I want to wrap up now. I want to first let people know, if you like this kind of conversation, we've got a lot more coming. Congressman Tom Emmer, is going to join us June 23rd at 11. Uh, he is uh, not only a congressman from uh, Minnesota here, but he's also head of the Republican U.S. House Reelection Committee. Uh, if you're interested in that, please join us. Uh, then we're going to have a terrific program on July 9th with David Axelrod, who was the political guru to Barack Obama, and Vin Weber, a longtime uh, Republican from Minnesota and a, a kind of a political guru. Uh, in Washington. Uh, thanks. I'm going to thank Scott Kiefer, who's just a terrific partner and collaborator um, and a great source of ideas. I'm going to thank the people who made this possible. Um, I want to thank uh, Mike Curry. Uh, I want to thank Kate Semino, who was the uh, mastermind behind this, uh, Kristen Fasten. Um, and I want to uh, thank all of you for joining us. If you'd like information about the recording of this, it will be available online uh, probably tomorrow. And mostly, Jen Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for what you're doing for our state. We appreciate it enormously. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Have a good day, folks.